and welcome to the Dice and Screaming Podcast. Ah! Or they're howling. Oh, all right. Yep. The Dice and Screaming Podcast, the podcast that doesn't know how to listen at doors. <laughs> Get heard every single time. Can you we're always surprised by what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. So. <laughs> Should have just used an ox spell. Yeah, yeah. We don't listen yeah. to doors. So, hey, welcome, folks. Uh, yeah, we're back again with another episode for you. I got the D&D movie trailer impression. Up on deck. Yeah. Because As the, promised, the Mechaomancer has uh, struck true once again. Once again. Right. And uh, we'll get to the Mechaomancer in just a moment. But uh, also want to say that the last thing you probably want to hear is two old guys talking about their impressions of the D&D movie trailer. Well, you're going to yep. basically have to buckle in because this is going to be a wild ride. Well, that's what we've got. Yes. It is two old guys bloviating about it. No, but I, I think we have a very positive attitude towards the new material. Right. But there's one hitch. As we are discussing how like cautiously optimistic we are about the new material, we will also be breaking ground on why people are deservedly and justifiably gun-shy about the old material. So... Uh, yeah, if you were really in love, if you were entranced by the first Dungeons and Dragons movie some years ago, this is so not the episode for you. This you may want to like salve your feelings by just giving this a giant pass and skipping over, and then like catch up with us next week because there is like we're not. I don't think we're physically capable of saying anything nice about it, except that. In some respects, it may have enhanced our constitution mentally, uh, because once you've been through that level of torture, it's you know it it just raises your character a little bit. You know, you it's <laughs> so hard to hurt you that badly again. You Wait, can, did Marcus Aurelius on meditations have something yes. to say about that? Yeah, stoicism. You know, like that. You know, like we, the value we took from it is that, wow, after something that hurt that much, it's kind of hard to recognize pain anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so the numbing effects had some value, but that's it. That's the only nice thing you're ever going to hear me say about that experience. Yeah, and uh, also we want to talk about our Vault of the Draw episode. Uh, yeah, very popular. We had a lot of fun doing that. But Big time. We ended up making an oops. Uh, we had some call-ins from Jason uh, about our previous episode, D&D Celebrity. So we're going to address those at the back end of this episode after we get done uh Talking about the D&D movie trailer. Yeah, we're going to hit the currently relevant call first, and then at the very end of this uh, podcast, we will tackle the second. Yeah, so sorry about that, Jason. But we needed a lot of sea room to maneuver last time, so that's why we were very eager to get into it. We had this is a mod that was a module that we really enjoyed talking about and oh. also playing, and because it's so it, it changes the scope of you know uh, the, against the giants, which is basically one combat scene long combat scene with some exploration and the second one was a little bit more explanation uh, exploration with lots of combat and this one was oh. okay now you have to be very cautious on what you do yeah i mean the immensity of the combat is still there however the need for caution the need for subterfuge the the need for compromise uh, they are so present in that module that like they really were facets we could not ignore. We needed I, every minute. I wanted to also, uh, I neglected to talk about one of the things I wanted to bring up, and I'm just going to take the time briefly here to touch on it, uh, was Robert E. Uh, what it reminded me of, 
uh, existentially was The People of the Black Circle by Robert E. Howard. Um, how Conan was in a stranger in a strange land and had to navigate his way in this very dark, perverse society. It reminded me a lot of that, not point for point, but by beat, by beat. I think it uh, it had a lot of that, and you know, I liked uh, I like old uh, Robert E. Howard's writings on when he decided to, to explore a depraved culture. He was uh, very apt in it, and I think that that was the approach we were trying to go for, but. You know, every DM is going to run it differently. You're not saying that that is a uh, a literary takedown, but it's just an impression I had. So, oh yeah, I, like again, the, everything is trumped by the fact that my absolute belief is that uh, the DM is the creative in charge at any given table, and you know, like your your vision is the most important one at that table. Uh, so, you know. Much right. comfort. Yeah, it was just a, it was just kind of an add-on. So, but crazy challenging. Yeah. No matter how you slice it, man, it is like neck deep in challenges for even the wily players. Oh, um, before we get into the call-in, though, uh, how about a visit to the Mercaeomancer? Ah, and bring you an assortment of fine blades. What can you tell us of the future? As I gaze into the knives and swords available to us. I see RuneQuest in the offing. Ah. Third edition RuneQuest, to be specific. This is the Avalon Hill edition. Uh, We'll be talking, you know, chief differences uh, a little. There will be some candid talk of slight deficits compared to other versions, uh, but there will also be some very cheerful conversation on some of the elements that we like, because overall... We do prefer to take a positive approach. Like, let's right. talk about I, what we love I, I like gaming. the approach of the third edition. I like RuneQuest, where it's attachment to Gorans, and I think there was something lost. Yeah. But I also think there was something to be that was not quite grasped because I think um, they wanted to keep things kind of generic so each game master could make up his own pantheon of gods. But I think if they just went with a much more uh, explicit definition of the gods of dark age europe i think it would have been much better and that would have tied RuneQuest a little bit better to it but yeah there's a few like gimmies that we can think of right off the bat that are things that might have made it a better product overall uh however that having been said it's, it's a very attractive piece of work for its time period yeah so. and RuneQuest has changed very little yeah uh, not much has been shifted in it and i do think that the third edition respected some of the strongest qualities that runequest possessed overall yeah. all right well i'll save that for the that episode that discussion will take place next week all right so next episode runequest third edition comparison to the runequest role playing your fine time all right i like it all right so uh, as promised we have a call in from jason to start us off so let's get to it take it away jason Hey guys, Jason here. Enjoyed the Vault of the Drow. Looking forward to the D&D movie trailer discussion. I am op- optimistic. Obviously, a trailer is not the whole story. You know, it could be a bait-and-switch thing. Maybe we've seen all the best stuff. And the CGI is going to just get better before the final release. But overall, I am optimistic. I think this is the right way to go. I think doing the Marvel-style thing as opposed to a dark, gritty movie is smart. I like what I see. Because in a D&D movie, I don't want the exact rules. I want to see the monsters. I want to see nods to the tropes of the genre. And I want it to be fun. So 
so far, I am, I'm pretty optimistic about it. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say. All right, we're back. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Yeah, we're in the same boat. Uh, cautiously optimistic. I think maybe we've seen a lot from the trailer, but yeah, as we will get into it, I guess we'll discuss it more. But yeah, your thoughts are pretty much on point with ours, I think, on this one. Yeah, uh, cautious optimism. You know, there, there's a little hesitance, which I believe, you know, is for all of us somewhat justified. You know, we've been teased before and then uh, done egregious harm. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, on that matter, let's get right into it then. Yeah, uh, all right, like, okay. So yeah, we Rip watched the Band-Aid off. Yeah, so we got uh just jump right in it. Uh we got a uh, hold of the trailer. I seen it and then I showed it to Mike and then uh, and he was rather wowed by it. And uh, you know, he was like not bad. Well rendered. <coughs> uh, excellent. The Led Zeppelin score didn't hurt either. Uh, well, look, I mean you're never gonna lose ground with the two of us <laughs> if Led Zeppelin is playing in the background. And I, I admit that that's like our little like Gen X OK Boomer bump. Okay. I admit that. I'm going to own right. it and just like that's a thing. You put, if that's wrong, I want to be wrong. Yeah. I am happy and proud to be wrong uh, if that is wrong because Led Zeppelin in the background improves everything. It's like a little salt uh, on steak, you know, just right. a little, little sprinkle where it's most needed. Boom, boom. Perfect. Uh, other takeaways, uh, I see, I, I know that we can only divine from this being a trailer, uh, and I don't think narration, like external narration, is, mm -hmm. is a part of the actual product itself, but they had to compress everything into just a couple of minutes to give people a window into the movie. Now, I don't necessarily like narration uh, in my advertising. It's a personal taste, but I didn't take it personally, okay? I, I understand that that is a technique to compress and deliver as much information as quickly as possible for an advertisement. So I forgive that. But beyond that, I was so impressed by what I saw. I, there was a very clear narrative going on. Like you were able to make some sense very quickly of what the plot of this is going to be about. Yeah, some people say it follows the Waterdeep heist uh, storyline. There's maybe, shades of but, that. Yeah, yeah, and you know what? Uh, I like the design and architecture of the vaults and locks. That's very cool. Um, I also was very wowed immediately that we're not going to have an origin story. We're going to jump right into the action. We have established characters, and they're going to have new characters enter in. And I don't mind that cinematographer uh, kind of cinematic choice. Okay, the the decision in the writing and the creating of this to like drop you in, uh, and then things just take off and run with it. I enjoy that every bit as much as I enjoy the slow build. There are some stories that you need that background. Uh, desperately or it's just not going to work at all i think at least in the case of this this is the kind of story and dnd is the kind of background where you can launch people into this you know just catapult them right into it and they're going to have a good time anyway yeah and jason's right i think on this that we want to see the monsters the fireballs the 
magic spells and weapons, the flaming axes, like things that happen in your D&D game are going to be highlighted here. Yeah. Now, one of the things that uh, probably a lot of people got tired of real quick was the idea that, oh, well, druids can't wild shape into owlbears. Okay. Okay. I mean, I hear, except when they do. Except when they do. I mean, there's the flaccuracy of monsters change <laughs> from Temple of Elemental Evil for and druids. Fifth edition does let the. Uh, and Pathfinder both have ways for druids to take monstrous wild shapes, although they pay a slight penalty for it or lose an option to do something. And in terms of canonical things, you know, like remember that once it becomes an, like a higher level campaign, uh, pretty much everything is justified. Uh, right, it's and a I, game of house rules for God's sake. Yeah, this builds on a game of house rules, and it, and immediately when it came out, somebody created a uh, document for free that uh, gave an order of uh, owl bear shifting druids. So oh. that solves that problem, right? Well, that was it's and Canaan now. <laughs> well, it's not <laughs> Canaan, but I mean, it's as Canaan as you want if you look from third party publishing. But that's a different topic. So, but. The rancor that was immediately leveled at people, like, oh, this is just going to give people the wrong impression about how to play d and I'm going to have to put this up with my table. You'll be having bad, wrong fun if you do this. You're like, oh, God, just give it a rest, man. Right. Be, give it a rest. As Shannon Appleclain said, be ambassadors, not gatekeepers. This movie, if it does well, will bring a whole new crowd of people into D&D. And yes, you're going to have to teach them. But here's the thing. Teach them our ways. Yes, kill their first level character and say, you don't deserve a backstory, puke. Yeah, well... But, hey, at the same time... If their druid makes it to 12th level, let them be a freaking owlbear. What harm does it do at that stage? Because you better... If you're doing your job as a DM, the challenges they will be facing right. should be more than sufficient to you know merit that kind of thing. Right, so I, and I, when I, I say be harsh to them... I, I worry about balance, that's it. Well, right, but uh, my thing is, it's, teach them our ways. You can be, uh, you know, you can kill their first level character and say, there's no crying in D&D. Roll up another character and get back on the saddle, kid. Uh, yeah, right, I, but I, you have to also put it in terms like this. If you're just going to be wantonly cruel to people at your table, uh, you probably haven't, I mean, if that's the kind of sadist you are if that's oh. all that lures you to this then i mean you're really wasting everybody's time right uh, but if you're going to teach them how old school was meant to be played or some of the the backgrounds like hey that they come into play into the fifth edition game that they're starting points for you to build a character upon and give you a root and grounding into the campaign and the story that's great um help people show them we have talked continuously in old school, in our old games. We weren't old school. We were actual school. That was what was being played at the time. And that was what we did, is we created characters with a minimal background that grew over time. And that's what we're talking about. Now, sometimes, yeah, we did have an elaborate story that wanted to be played out in a various type of uh, oh, a few campaign. Of them, sure. Yeah, and but we more made those one-off or... Uh, solo campaigns centered around a certain character and a storyline. But no matter how you did it back then, how you do it now has changed. And you have to change and progress or you become stagnant. And that's what really uh, is the core of this little side rant about uh, gatekeepers. You grow when you collect experiences, or at least you normally do. And the longer we played, the more experiences we collected, the more little changes we made to the style of play into the style of creativity uh the more we read and watched and saw and like 
stumbled across other good ideas out there. Great DMs don't borrow, they steal. You know, like, like, yeah. throw that in there again. Uh, the more we encountered, the more we learned from it and the more what we were creating or DMing was informed by those experiences. Uh, and we didn't, I can't remember a time when the door was completely shut. Okay, I, I don't get this mentality that like, you know, lower the gates, you know, <laughs> they're approaching. <laughs> oh, they're not a story uh, gaming player. Open the gates a little. Yeah. They're playing a typing. Oh. All right. Uh, you know, this entrenched hostility is like literally the opposite of what I experienced, uh, you know, in the 80s. It, it was very much a a vortex where everything got sucked in. I, you know, like a, so you watch a science fiction movie or a fantasy fiction movie or a samurai movie or everything. Every single thing I encountered literarily, cinematically, television, you know, uh, even music, uh, everything got pulled in. And then it, you're like, we have added its uh, uniqueness to our own. <laughs> uh, we are Borg gamer. Now, uh, that's the place that we came from. Right. And, and I, I get that there are people who... <sighs> If they're just gun shy and they're primed to hate this because of what happened to us before, the thing that we dare not speak of. Oh, but we will. Yeah. We, we're finally going to do it and rip the band aid off. This is the thing that really, we have often got a lot refused of to do. Off lately. Yeah. You know, we, we, we've got refused to do an episode about that incident because the hate runs so deep but it's kind of time to lance the boil and just let the infection out right this is our healing process and i think this movie holds the potential to heal the wounds in our collective hearts right and you know it's absolutely true that you know we absorb stuff and it seems like they've taken not only parts of the game but parts of other cultures or pop culture and put this in tune with a narrative in a cinematic storytelling. And I like that the fact that, yeah, okay, they're taking the trope of the dumb, horny bard and putting Chris Pine's character as, you know, like, okay, so one of the insults I heard about the movie was like, it's going to be about a bard? Like, that's like the worst D&D character to have because everybody knows all they do is seduce creatures and just sing. Okay, um, yeah, it's a nice little trope. But I think we're going to see something different here. As well, it it characterized it themselves in the opening sequence as a band of thieves. Okay? Honor among thieves. That you know they have the rogue class, the warrior class, and like a spell slinger in the mix. And yeah, but they're grub, money grubbing mercenaries who yes, do dirty deeds. They for They get into scrapes. They go after treasures. They take you know questionable deals. Uh, they make money however they can uh, so rather than just ridiculous horny bard you know this this is not uh, <laughs> Scanlan <laughs> oh bless you critical role I, I, I love you guys you know because hey you know what that's a D&D trope too and if people are concerned they're not going to obey the tropes then why are you suddenly like oh damn it they're going to obey the tropes pick a freaking side that's all I'm asking <laughs> you figure out what it is that your principle is and then 
fall on the side of that no matter what. And I can at least stand in support of you and say, hey, you have a principle. There's a thing you like and or dislike, and you're rigid about how that is applied. You're obviously true to a particular faith or credo, and I can respect that. But if you're just wobbling back and forth, like I totally changed my mind. That thing that I hate it when they do that, I love it when they do that. Uh, when it's the thing that I like. And I hate it when they do that, when it's like whatever thing I don't like, but it's exactly the same scenario. Yeah, you know what? Screw you. Just, <laughs> there's no reason to even take you seriously or to, yeah, like, yeah. we don't need to lend your criticisms any there was, credence whatsoever. There was uh, a lot of screech we, re, uh, weasels out on the internet on yeah. this drop, and it kind of just floors me. I mean, this looks good. I mean, okay, but let's well, talk about... tongue-in-cheek humor, okay? Uh, but, like, does it belong in there? Yes, I know that that was also a facet of some past attempts to make these fantasy movies. And they work, okay? A tongue-in-cheek sense of humor that doesn't go too far. There's a wonderful balance, and I, I like that you mentioned early on the Marvel movie style, where, you know, tongue-in-cheek humor is frequently in included. And it has a place cinematically there, and it has place in Dungeons and Dragons itself. Anybody who has like genuinely sat at a table with at least one jackass like me uh, has been subjected to a ridiculous sense of humor from time to time. I mean, from time to time. Uh, well, all right. Almost every time I you get call my hands on being some dice. doused with a fire high pressure fire hose, time to time. Yeah, that look. I mean, it is kind of a running stream of consciousness that. It, once a, you get started, it's, it, it's, it's, if it's, I get on a roll, it, it's it's terrible. Uh, <laughs> Look out, you're in for a rough night. But I am almost certain that the creatives involved in the process of making this movie have exercised far greater restraint than, say, Mike. Well, so, and also, I, I don't this is time to delve any. right in. I think that what you're hitting on there is I think the creatives that on this movie, just what we've seen with the trailer, maybe we're attaching a lot to just what we've seen so far. Maybe all we've seen all the good points when we've seen it. Displacer Beast, Gelatinous Cubes, several types of dragons. This is looking really good. Now, they're showing a considerable amount of creativity and uh, understanding the material they're working with than the first D&D movie. So oh, let's... they packed a lot of it into that ad. Yeah, uh, they were like ad. ready to show you, like, hey, we understand what you're talking about. Now, the first D&D movie had Jeremy Irons. Wonderful and, actor, no malice towards him personally. Like I like Jeremy Irons, Very and much. he made a decent attempt at that movie. But oh, that was about it. The rest of the movie, oh, well, you know, let's talk about what wounded us. Uh, okay, a ripoff artist managed to convince people that he was a filmmaker. Okay, that's how that story begins. Yes, yeah. guy was a total con artist, and that is the tragedy that began this. Now. Like, he had some film school chops to his credit, but yeah, he no, yeah. never had the... No connections, never really made a movie, you know, nothing to speak of. And he literally knew just enough to know what numbers to dial. And he spoke the language. And people believed it. So... Like, and TSR at the time was hip to get into a movie. And yeah. so, you know, it seemed like a good thing. Now, unfortunately, when Wizards bought it out, they were also obligated to see this to its end. And... Um, I went and seen an opening day, and, uh, probably the first showing. I think he just got out of the third shift and uh, we uh, you know, got a big breakfast in and then went and seen it, went open up in the theater. And when I, I remember leaving and trying to find, I mean, I struggled to find something 
to justify staying up after a long night of work to make that time I spent seem, well, well, cost-effective, efficient, and, and, and nothing, nothing. By the time I got home, I was like, I was mad at myself for watching the movie. I was like, what a waste of time and money and effort. And then the way it squandered every bit of potential, just when you thought, oh, Ride the Dragon Control, this sounds like this could be cool. Nope, just completely boned it up, just bungled it right from the word go. And Thora Birch, yeah, kind of looked cool in the scale mail riding a dragon, but again, where you could have done a lot with that footage, nope, squandered again. No, and just, hey, we're going to just crowd a whole bunch of CGI dragons in this movie. There's more dragons than you can count. Okay. But to, uh, nothing to avail. Yeah. It was sound and fury. Literally, to be crude here, yeah, I've had moments on the uh, toilet and that have been more productive. <laughs> the entire movie was an enormous bilabial fricative. Yeah. Uh, just failure abounded and honestly it's one of those moments where you wish like everybody could have been there at that moment afterwards because the look of shell-shocked horror on every face of every gamer you know and this only happened inside gaming okay nobody else really went to see that stink right right uh, this was one that had so little appeal and was such a niche product that for it to then be that bad it literally only wounded the people who were in the hobby and were fans and then the rest of the world ignored it at large and went, uh, whatever, I, I don't even remember. Was that even in theaters? Yeah, like, well, all right, for about five minutes. Uh, so uh, <laughs> the only people who were wounded were the true fans. And, yeah, and it had nothing to do the with how look the... look of pain! I know, and it had nothing to do with how the rules or the game was played. No. This was just a horrible story. And it was... in any cinema, It was... Amateurish. Any potential it had was squandered at almost every opportunity. And as if somebody had a collection, like a like they'd been handed a list of great ideas and then absolutely refused to follow up on any of them. They just referenced the great idea and then stopped right there. And like, okay, let's move on with our hackneyed amateur plot. We made mention briefly of the thing that, oh man, that would have been cool. And then nothing. Yeah, you know, you know, they had the King of Thieves and that whole uh, going through the maze of traps. That was possibly the only thing I really liked out of that. Because it did seem like, you know, here's a lot of things that I seem to have encountered in my time as a DM and a player watching Thieves struggle with. But again, what was, it, it was just a squandered moment. It was, uh, it was pretty much left dead. And, uh, you know, it served as a little bit of exposition to get from one point to another. But you know, and of course the uh, guy who played Riff Raff. I forget the actor's name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I'm trying to remember it at the moment too. And you had Tom Baker as the Elf Lord, and yeah. I'm like, oh wow, couldn't even have put armor on the dude. I mean, come on, Elf Lord. I mean, no. Uh, yeah, Thora Birch gets scale mail, but like the Elf Lord is just chilling. Yeah, just wearing you know bathrobe and slippers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so many moments of failure and I, I honestly I attribute this uh, almost exclusively to the fact that a guy had talked his Corey way Solomon. into the sweet pea yeah, he, he, entertainment 
he talked his way into this. And the only thing I will give him credit for is that when presented with the possibility that this was all going to unravel if he didn't get this done and fulfill his promises, uh, the guy could have just ran for the hills and like made a series of phone calls saying, I'm sorry, you know, like the company changed hands and you know, like the property is like in flux and like I, I, there's nothing I can do for you people. I tried, you know, it's not my fault. He could have run for the hills. This guy kept at it. Like, he doubled down. Let's yeah. get this pig in a can, man. That's what he was going to do. And, and the end product, of course, suffered for that because they had to get a product or he was going to be like remember yeah, they were supposed his, to have a... his maiden voyage as a filmmaker was going to end with him as the clown shoe that failed to make a movie because he was a rank amateur and a fraud uh, and instead he got the narrative of like okay you did in fact complete a movie but it's one of the worst stinkers of all time and i am including manos hands of fate in that category yes Yes, I referenced mm. MST3K. Yeah, I think the D&D movie needs to be watched with MST3K. Yes. Uh, that's the only way it's watchable. Mano's Hands is completely unwatchable without the MST3K yeah. crew. And that is, this is a stinker of those proportions to me. Uh, yeah, it is something it is, that is unviewable if you aren't busy with your best friends, literally laughing at it and relieving the angst by insulting it at every opportunity. It helps. Because a guy with a villain with blue lipstick just speaks sinister. <laughs> you know, just oozes, you know, confidence and <laughs> I don't know. So now they did eight. come out with two other movies. Uh, I forget the second one's name, but that one wasn't half bad. All right. At least they tried. Now they ran out of money halfway through and they ended up having to do some stuff. Just like the first movie was supposed to have a beholder in it. That was one of his selling points. He was like, Yeah, I'm gonna put a CGI beholder in this. And everybody's like, "Oh, that'll be really cool," but they bailed, and so was, he got an angry jailer. So uh, CGI was uh, much more expensive back then. By, <laughs> by, by the way, you know, like these things, the rendering teams. One, the the skill set is so much more common now. Right, you can get a terrific team of CGI renderers to go to town on a project at a reasonable budget. Well, cost. like the World but of Warcraft movie was the old days. I mean. Almost all 25 years ago, trying to get good CGI people was like, okay, there goes most of the movie's budget. Like, thank God we're you know, like not picking A-list actors because you can have great CGI or you can have great A-list actors, but you can't have both. Yeah, in the second, in, much in, tougher. In the second one, you at least had somebody teleporting into a wall. <laughs> you had a, a, a cleric actually casting uh, spells. Yeah. And you had the dragons doing what dragons do, you know, white dragon breathing prospering. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Appropriate. And it was all right. I mean, they at least followed some of the things of D&D. It just wasn't. What was the title of that movie? I can't remember. I think it was, uh, it was the second one. Google, <laughs> bring me the title of the second D&D movie. Internet, bring to me a farting panda. <laughs> but it had it had heart. I'll give it that. It, what it lacked in substance, in, in in visual appeal, it at least got right. It walked right for a DD. Now the the third one, the book of Wild Darkness. Oh yes, was a lot better. But it was a very well. It's about a fallen paladin. So you're yeah. right off the bat there. A little bit of a niche product there. Uh, 
And again, Wrath of the Dragon God was the second movie. Okay, Wrath of the Dragon. God. So that wasn't too bad. Now, that having been said, these were sci-fi, low-budget productions. Yeah, they none of them got the big scale treatment that the first movie attempted and failed. Uh, they just sort of admitted that you know we can operate to scale, and we're going to work on some projects that hey, the fan base itself will love it, but these will never like be blockbusters. Now, what we're looking at today, we're actually staring down the barrel of what might actually be the very first time. Dungeons and Dragons has a film or a, a cinematic product that holds blockbuster potential. Yeah, it could, they're potentially talking. If it does well, this could be a franchise type yeah. movie that you could build off of. Paramount is kind of excited about it, and you know, um, I wish them all the luck. Um, whether it's good or bad, I want to say this: um, unlike the first D and D movie, where you know, why couldn't you just you know sit back? Uh, let your imagine, uh, let your expectations go, and just enjoy a good movie. I did that with the uh, Claude Van Damme and Cyborg, and managed to sit through an hour and a half of like absolutely nothing of substance, and wondered like, what on earth did I spend that money for? Like, I I have better memories of the popcorn I ate right. for action to happen than I did of the actual movie. So, yeah, with yeah, the Butterfinger. Bar and the uh, pop tub of popcorn. I had a better time with those things in the D and D movie than I had with actually enjoy- watching. I mean, it, it was cringy at times. It, yeah, it was just it, you literally sat there like, oh my god, let's go through. Oh, I'm just gonna forget about this and try to focus on the good. And then it, the next terrible scene would come through. So, all right, we beat it up pretty well. Do you think you got a couple extra cakes to give? Oh, we move on. Well, one of them I, I have, but I, I literally cannot use it on air. Okay. I mean, it's too vile of a description. <laughs> and, like, I know we're not always family friendly, but we are mostly like listener friendly in, in that we attempt to at least curb the worst impulses and not go absolutely crazy. This is not like we're not the dicer screaming, angry old guys screaming epithets into the ether, you know. We don't do that. It's like we we do try to seriously examine upsides, downsides, you know, and then be reasonable about it and weigh and measure where we go with it. Uh, if I had one last kick to give, uh, it's it was the stigma that really stung. Okay, the stigma mm-hmm. of a movie released for your genre, your beloved chosen genre, finally. First time it gets a big name movie. Yeah, and this it, was around Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, uh, this. While other properties were taking off, we got the pig. We got the stinker. Yeah. Okay, and looking back in, back in retrospect, one of the things that caused me the greatest angst about it was that like we have to own that. Like that was our IP. This was like oh. Dungeons the Dragons. Oh, isn't that 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 thing with the, you know, like there, there's dragons and all that, and there's dungeons, but like, you know, didn't they make that movie that just was absolutely the worst thing ever made? Like, yeah, it was yeah. absolute, it was that absolute butt. I mean, it was just terrible. So yeah, I guess that's our final kick to it. And we're looking like, the, like, uh, what is it? Uh, boots and the ginger and 
Letter Kenny. Like n- nobody's going to get over that. The alleged ostrich incident. That was our ostrich incident. You know, we Pant- we had to live goose. that down. Uh, must have been a sick ostrich. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly sick ostrich. So, yeah, there. I, I let it out. I lanced the boil. Yeah, I think that we're looking forward to this with some guarded optimism. Oh, big time. I mean, and yeah, we're looking... For those who were upset about the owlbear scene, frankly, I haven't had that much fun watching, like, one, like, just, like, 10-second clip since Hulk pounded Loki into the floor. I know, right? I I've heard like, that from oh, several that people. I'm just, glad you brought that awesome. up. Ah. Yeah, it was just... Bam, bam, bam. I had a Krieger mower. I was like... I can only get just so erect. <laughs> what happened? Yeah, and that's the way I am. And I'm like, I love watching the displacer beast jump at the different types of dragons. Oh. I'm like, this is going to end the flaming axe and the I'm eldritch tropes, blade. And they're all tropes I like. Now, they may have action-packed it, and this may have been like two minutes of the best material from the whole movie. But honestly, my suspicion is that if this is indicative of like a baseline, we're going to come out of this reasonably happy mm-hmm. I, i'm so. planning to have a good time and i'm going in with an open mind and an open heart i i'm okay i've been hurt before but i'm ready to get back out there right. and i think that puts us pretty well so yeah we hit a lot of the thing, same things uh jason we just took uh, a lot of your beats and uh we ran with them i think that like you said there could be some stuff we're seeing here but seeing the monsters the magic the tropes all the things that make us really the wow factor of D showing that to the world i think is a good thing and i think this critical role and other things have really done a lot for DD, and i hope that it does well because i look forward to seeing a franchise at DD. So, oh god if only i mean I, I don't dare to dream that far yet but right I, but i'm in a good place right now all right so we're going to take a quick break and we're going to be back and we're going to talk a little bit more and then we're going to get into some stuff so you better keep your eye out so we'll be right back All right, so we're back. All right, so yeah, uh, taking out our frustrations on the poor D&D Dungeons & Dragons movie, the first one, what did it ever do to you? Well, now you know. Uh, and let's face it, uh, you know, when I was, I think, 13, the, the show Wizards and Warriors came out on TV. Oh, yeah. You know, and... You know, I, I just watched that It on may have YouTube been an absolute stinker itself, but I was 13, and I had a great freaking time. Because, I had a lot of fun with yeah, it, too, there was, Yeah, there was nothing else out there like it. And then, you know, they shuffled it around and they got lost. And I went and watched the episodes and I'm like, oh, man, this is horrible. But at least, again, just like with that second DD movie, Wrath of the Dragon, we're talking about, it had heart. Yeah. Oh, a lot of pluck. You know, they, they were. I can respect that. Even if you fail a little bit here and there in your execution or you just fall on jokes, which it was just a reset at the end. The kingdom was saved. The princess was fine. Yeah. It. Is a repeat of the same thing with the sinister wizard and warriors lurking in the background? It seemed to have a lot of potential. Uh, you really didn't see a show. Well, all right. I, I suppose it's a slightly different edge. Uh, there was the cable show Gallivant, uh, which had a great deal of singing for my tastes. Because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not like, all right, I know I should be. I know it's like you know, treason on my part, but I'm not actually a big fan of musicals. Well, let's look at, like, we'll just take the analogy a little bit. Look at a a show like Cheers, which was meant to just be, like, some sleeper uh, hit where they would just create 20 shows, sitcoms, and spitball them and see what stuck. 
and Cheers did, they gave it enough space to grow. But if you look at the concept, washed up or uh, uh, has been baseball player, was once kind of seen as great, lives, you know, retires to his so-called dream of owning a bar with his coach. And that's <laughs> despite the fact that he no longer drinks. Right. And there's all these cast of recurring characters. It grew on people. Okay. So you got to sometimes had to give the potential and sometimes it just doesn't work out in the cutthroat business. It's like, well, going back and watching V the series. Now I liked V when it came out on TV. Originally. Oh, yeah. I loved that uh, miniseries. But now going back and watching it with, I mean, I, I grooved on Michael Ironside's character, but now I realize that, oh, he wasn't a good guy. I, I enjoyed the Max Headroom television show a long time ago. That's coming back, uh, too. Oh, I, I remember being so ticked when uh, Misfits of Science did not get the opportunity. Um, all right. You know. Buckaroo Banzai, Misfits of Science fits into a niche that we can probably cover in another. Yeah, just created I, you know, there were content. a lot of things out there that attempted to appeal to a gamer perspective, to a science fiction and fantasy fan uh, mindset. Greatest and, American Hero. Oh, yeah. At least that got two seasons. Yeah. Okay. You know, we were not wholly deprived of, like, even a dignified, like, swan song. Uh, oh, it, it went into. Yeah. But... With the D&D movie, we experienced the worst possible thing that we could possibly experience. <laughs> and I honestly don't think it did raise us up like as stoics, so to speak, in that we are now prepared for pain and suffering on an epic scale, and we're not afraid of it anymore. You know, So it, it did us that favor. Yeah. And here we are. I, I don't want to be vindictive to people who are a little shy. If they're a little wary of what's about to happen, I feel like there's some justification there. Okay, you probably yeah. should be a little cautious. But man, my optimism is starting to get infectious. It's starting to overtake. Yeah, the worst thing I can say about it is we've got to wait a doggone year. Yeah, and that that is the worst thing we could say. It's the, the one tidbit that I wanted to bring up that was my one negative point about this is that it's too early for the trailer. Okay, I do not, in any circumstance, I don't care what movie it is, or how big a franchise it is, or how non-existent a franchise it may be, I, I don't care. The principle is, trailers should be popping up just a few months before the movie. Like, you, you have your teasers, uh, and your intro trailers, and then in the like month of the actual film release, that's when you hammer it, and you... Yeah, really you start to hype train then. Yeah, you, you really get the hype rolling at that time. Um, and I do not want to see as a trend uh, this to like movie trailers to turn into things like political ads, where, oh, great. Oh, it's important to know this. Uh, 18 months before it's time to do anything, uh, pointedly enough. I, yeah. I do not approve of that, and I will wish they would not ever do that again give me like 90 days to figure out that 90 days. something is yeah there's something that draws the eye to the number 90 something that transfixes you to stare at it until it stares back and you realize you have stared into the unyielding inscrutable gaze of the arcane eye oh, and once again you are transported to look at small independent geekery across the interwebs and beyond. 
And what does the arcane eye force you to gaze upon? But the scourge of the Northland Kickstarter. People say that we don't do enough old school coverage on this channel. Well, that's going to change. Oh, yeah. This is exactly that. We're talking old school essentials, and this is one of their new and upcoming projects. Well, this is an independent guy. It's... Uh, He's had some uh, a success before, and boy, I am just running loose on the uh, writer's name. He has done <laughs> terrible things, as I'm sure. He's done great things. Yeah, he's done he's done great things in the past. But Scourge of the Northland. Let's just uh, it's a Sandbox style adventure campaign designed for low level characters. The Scourge of Northland. Oh, the, the, the Scourge. The Scourge of Northland, uh, and man. First, let's talk, just first visual impression. The art style is hauntingly reminiscent of some of the early illustrations of D&D. So you, I, I feel like there's a reasonable homage being given there. Uh, you know, just wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I, I don't want to say crude. The name because... of the uh, author is Jacob Fleming, and he is just a... Uh catch up with myself. I got a lot. Get excited looking at this artwork. Um, yeah, he did uh, the In the Shadow of the Tower of Silver Axe and Through the Valley of the Manticore uh, before. And so he's had some experience with Kickstarters, but this is his latest offering. So, yes. I threw you off the rail. Sorry. Okay. Uh, back to the art. It's, it's quality in the sense that it's wonderfully reminiscent of the golden age of science fiction and fantasy cover art. Uh, yes. It very strongly uh, evokes the kind of imagery that you would have seen on Daw books or Tor, uh, on those imprints, on these slender volumes that they would put out. Yeah, the, the early the early years. Oh, what was it? Uh, Andre uh, Norton's yeah. novels. You know, that kind of feel. Now, as for the product itself, you hit them with this. Oh, yeah, this is... Um... The Scourge of, of Northland is basically a sandbox style campaign designed for low-level characters, but it is over 60 pages of keyed adventure locations, dungeons, strongholds, important NPCs, treasure maps, magic maps, all the stuff you'd expect out of the old school's environments with a deep hook that will let the players get in deep to this without being bogged down with a barrage of stuff right in the first. It's adventure first, and that's the old school ethos that I think that we cleave to. But in the previous, compared to previous adventures, in the shadow of Tower of the Silver Axe and through the Valley of the Manicor, this area is far greater and it comes, Northland is bigger than it's touted in the Blurp here uh, than the state of Delaware. And it comes with a full map, which is still in development, and uh, the artwork alone here, we can just uh, stop and marvel into that. Now, that said, uh, the baseline point of entry for this, I believe it was $27. $27 gets you uh, the uh, Village Priest <laughs> uh, module, uh, plus the print pack. And you can get both the uh, Valley Manicor and Tower of the Silver Axe as add-ons for $15 each. So if you miss those, you can pick them up here. Um, this will give you the print, PDF, and handouts and map print pack. So that works pretty well. So $27 and you're in. Uh, Village Priest, you know, the, I like that the tiers are named after the first three levels of Cleric. Uh, Oculate, adept, adept, and Priest. So very cool stuff. And it's uh, there's no stretch goals in this. Just reward tiers. What you, wanna, what you uh, buy into is what you get. 
the print pack uh, gives all the handouts, which look pretty nice. And the Vicar bundle, of course, gives you the uh, basically a store owner's bundle there and in the add-ons. Yeah, the all physical copies. In the um, shadow of the uh, Tower of the Silver Axe and through the Valley of the Manicor are add-ons. So you don't have to uh, get on those unless you want them. But I missed out on them. And, and boy, I love the, the just the cover art of In the Shadow of Tower of Silver Axe. Yeah, I, again. It's a giant skeleton. Holy crap. Uh, well, and it does absolutely evoke memories of some of the very most fun books I used to read long ago. So, yeah, it gets you right in the memory fields. Yeah, so this is a, a guy with proven track record. He's doing really well. And I think that uh, this is, uh, you know, encouraging signs to come of the best part of the OSR returning back to its main roots of just uh, publishing quality stuff. And this is, uh, looks like Jacob Plumbing has his finger on the pulse of what was working here. And I like it. So drop on by the Kickstarter, back to this project. It's already funded. It's got 16 more days at the time of this episode. So get yeah. yourself on over there and get yourself copies. So this one's be... looking like it's going to happen. So. And with that, the Arcane Eye releases you from its inscrutable game. And return you back to the normal world. And so back to our mundane existence we go. Uh, yeah, we mentioned that we had an oopsie. And yeah, we dropped the ball. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, we were just so hot to trot with these three that we just wanted to get right into it. And we forgot. Uh, Jason gave us two call-ins on the uh, D&D Celebrity episode. So he has some things that we think we would like to share with you. So once again, take it away, Jason. Hey guys, Jason here. Just want to say that, full disclosure, I am the person in Joe's game that does not like Pathfinder character creation and leveling up. I'm enjoying his game, though. Also, if you're looking for good interviews with these early creators, you have to go out and check out Grog Talk. They have a YouTube channel, and then they put it in podcast form as well. Grog Talk, G-R-O-G-T-A-L-K. And, I mean, they just recently had Mike Cook Carr on there, Mike Carr. And, but they've had a bunch of these guys on there. Great, great stuff. And, and definitely worth your time to go listen to if you want to hear interviews with, with these early creators and influential figures in D&D. So, and role-playing games in general, but especially in D&D. So, definitely check those interviews out. Mike Pondsmith is a huge hero of mine. And to give him, to shout out a couple things he doesn't normally get credit for, he worked with TSR on Buck Rogers, you know, the 25th century, that, that role-playing game, the original Buck Rogers one they came out with, which actually is a good game at its core. He did stuff with Carator, Oriental Ventures, Forgotten Realms. He also has uncredited contributions to West End game Star Wars. So, yeah, Mike Pondsmith, of course, Cyberpunk 2020 is still my favorite cyberpunk game. Still what I play. Um, so, yeah, I Mike Pondsmith is a, a legend. Great, great designer. All right. Hey, thanks, Jason. Sorry we missed you on that one. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you having fun in Joe's uh, Pathfinder game. But, yeah, Grog Talk, yeah, that's a good place to get it. Uh, that's a good uh, place to uh, get some interviews with some of the uh, old D&D celebrities, and of course, uh, you talk about Mike Pondsmith and bring up the Buck Rogers game. I, I tend not to uh, give him the credit on that one because that's just such a, a terrible 
terrible time in TSR, the time of... Uh, well, it was abject chaos. Yeah, it was... Uh, not Pondsmith's fault in any no, way. No, no, he was a freelancer, I think. Uh, he was working with Slade uh, Henderson at the time, but... Uh, Slade. I liked the game, Buck Rogers, but uh, yeah, that was the time of uh, Lorraine Williams. Well, Lorraine Williams, yes. Where you couldn't play test on company time because she didn't pay people to play games. At a company <laughs> that produces games. Uh, under no circumstances should you have any idea of like the, the viability of the product that you are developing. Bonehead. Yeah, just... Yeah, this is what happens when you get number crunching dingbats from outside the industry. Well, there's a lot more than just that. That was the Bloom Brothers. She was the after effects. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, nothing against her personally as, as for what she did. I mean, she is what she is. But uh, yeah, the one complaint I would have from that era is like, yeah, couldn't play test at but TSR. I'm so with you on the like, you know, sharing the Pondsmith love because yeah. that guy is an epic hero. West know, West End Games, uh, yeah, he's he did a lot uh, uncredited stuff, at least not cover blurbs. I think he's in a couple of the covers. You got, but you have to reach deep. And one of the reasons I like him, I mean, I believe I specified before is that like the reason I think we connect so much with him is that he is of our generation. That like tier two second arrival gamers who loved what they saw and then grew up thinking, man, this is the kind of thing that I want to be involved in the creation of. And then he did it, okay? And he did grunt work, freelance work. Yeah, I, I love Cyberpunk, PCL. his work on cyber revising Cyberpunk Red for a new new generation, new talent. But he was Mr. Productive and yeah. Mr. Dependable, okay? He, yeah. he earned every one of his chops in the gaming industry the hard way and he deserves our love and support. So I, I see him as you know, like the the Gen X hero of game creators. Okay. Yeah, he, he's my, he's my uh, uh, hero as far as like being able to, like, coming up from. Ferris Bueller, you're my hero. Yeah, he's my hero on that. So, yeah, all right. Well, hey, we're sorry we forgot you, Jason. But, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, sharing that. We'll put you at the tail end here. Maybe uh, folks will listen in. Forgive Rob us for talk- the neglect, you know, our. Our, sh- our shameful neglect of, of phone calls last week, but yeah. we were so short on time. Such a big, beefy episode. All right. But I hey. even forgot my joke. Yeah, we were ready to jump right in. So, all right. Well, that's going to do it for us. So thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show. And, of course, always follow us on in the Anchor app. Down though that dang old Anchor app. There's some changes coming up on Anchor, and we're going to let you know what's coming up with those on a future episode. But for right now, we're staying the course. So, Until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.